Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Greg, we're back. How are you, buddy? Hey, Matt. Doing well. I feel it's been a while. You know, it probably hasn't. I, I missed your voice. I uh, I have that effect on a lot of people. <laughs> I hope that one of them is your wife, but I, I don't know. It depends on the day of the week, probably. As far as I know, yeah. It <laughs> depends on the state of the honeydew list, I think. If there's That's a lot right. of items checked off, we're good. So what is the state of the honeydew list? Are you in good standing or are we, are, you have some demerits? It, it could be better. <laughs> it it'll be better in a minute. Yeah, we've we've got a few things to do around the house and I've I've got some some commitments in a good way. But you know, I've got my father-in-law's birthday is this weekend, so I'm handling some stuff for that. And uh, you know, once that's under the belt and yeah. How about it's you? How's everything? It's a busy birthday weekend. I feel the summer months tend to do that for us. But yeah, we're doing well. I've been over here working on some stuff in the yard trying to stay cool. It cooled down a little bit this week. So it was easier to get out outside, um, you know, as long as you timed it right. You know, the last week before that was a scorcher. So, um, but yeah, things are well, we're, we're staying busy and uh, getting ready for some travel upcoming, which we'll talk about maybe in a, uh, a little bit later on in another episode, but um, things are great. And we're here on Friday with drinks in hand and, uh, and a pretty special guest in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, he's being uh, like patiently waiting in the window here. Um, so let's just dive right in. We'll cut the uh, the small talk short. So we are joined today by none other than Cameron Weiss of Weiss Watches. Cameron is a classically trained watchmaker who's worked for what, two thirds of the quote unquote, holy trinity of the Haute brands. So Vacheron Constantin and Audemars Piquet. Uh, several years ago, he went out on his own and launched his own brand, Weiss Watches. He also spent at least a year as the co-host of the podcast, Watch and Listen with Matt Farah of The Smoking Tire. A lot of people are going to be familiar with that, Cameron. That was an awesome, I think a really awesome podcast enterprise. Cameron recently moved his family and his business to Tennessee. and We're absolutely stoked to have him on with us to talk about watches, the Tennessee brewing and distilling scene, and the latest news from his company. Cameron, welcome to The Spirit of Time. Thanks for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. I, it's uh, great to be doing a podcast again. I haven't haven't done one in a while. It's funny. I got used to hearing you so often. I, I, you know, it was one of my my absolute go to podcasts for for the time that it was on, and so um, it almost became synonymous with my commute was to hear you know you you guys fired up uh, a new episode. So um, this is fun to welcome you on to ours. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, I I just wanted to say a second. I, um, one of the coolest things about that podcast that, that I really enjoyed is somebody who's sort of been in the hobby for a while, but I'm, you know, I would consider myself like a knowledgeable layperson, right? Not an expert like Cameron, but it was sort of starting on the first episode and all the way through the year and sort of listening to the progression or the arc of the progression of Farah's knowledge and the, the way his taste changed and you know the stuff that he got into and the pieces that moved in and out of his collection over the course of that year and 
you know, I, I just thought it was very cool. Not only was he sort of gaining information, but I think, you know, being influenced by you, Cameron, and I think anybody would be, especially somebody new and deep into the hobby like Matt Farah. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think he learned a lot doing that, uh, for that, that year's worth of episodes. It was an incredible amount of studying. Um, you know, and I, I could kind of just hop in most episodes without having done much research, um, just because it is it's my full time job. But uh, for him, he had to do some research. And man, I would say after that year, he probably knows more about the history of watchmaking than I do. Wow! And could you know recite to you the history of at least like thirty top brands and every model in their catalog, plus the history of that model. It's an unbelievable amount of knowledge to, uh, to pick up in such a quick time. I thought the interplay between the two of you was awesome too, because, you know, you had, you know, Matt taking on this role and, and building and learning his knowledge. You had such a vast, you know, knowledge and, and perspective and, and then to bring it together in a way that people would enjoy listening to. I thought you did a great job. It was a fun, a fun, uh, uh podcast and, and who knows, maybe there's, you know, something in the future there again. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, there was definitely a lot of a lot of passion there from both of us. Um, both love watches, and so it was a lot of fun to to talk watches every every week for an hour. Speaking of watches, uh, figure we probably do a wrist check since we're on a, a watch podcast here. It's not unusual for anybody on the on on our call today. So, Cameron, jump in. What's tell us what's on your wrist? I, I'm guessing I might have an, a clue, but let's hear what it is. Yeah, so I've got a I've got the white dial standard issue. Um, so the standard issue has a Swiss movement in it, uh, and it's American made case and everything, uh, assembled by me here in, in Nashville. Now, uh, this is one of the newer ones. I'll show it to you guys on the video. So you can see, so there's no more Los Angeles on the dial. And that's been a big, uh, a big change for us because we've been in LA for, or had been in LA for a very long time. Um, I think it was about seven so just over seven years in LA uh, from the start of the company. So now got one of the new Nashville made standard issue, 42 millimeter field watches. That's super cool. That's a question I think we've both Greg and I had, but we've also had that question from other people. It's like, what does the dial look like? Is it sterile? Is he going to, you know, does he have plans to have it say, you know, Nashville or Tennessee or something on it? I, yeah, I've been getting that question a lot, so <laughs> we'll dive into that later. Very cool. Right on. Well, Greg, how about you? What have you got? You know, I actually also I'm, I'm kind of uh, riding on on uh, Cameron's coattails here. So I have the uh, standard issue 42 field watch um, latte dial, um, which still has the you know the Los Angeles on there. This is on loan from uh, a good buddy, Mark Turbo 1773, and. Um, going to get into some thoughts on it later, but I've always appreciated this one and, uh, it's just a great wear and it was perfect to wear, you know, put on the wrist for, for this afternoon with, uh, with Cameron here. Cool. Well, Hey, I'll go next. I guess there's three of us. I'm number three and it's, uh, it's a new watch alert today. Hit the sirens. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. I'll have to, we'll have to come up with a sound effect. No, I have, uh, on my wrist is the, uh, the new, the Seiko SPB 225. So this is the sharp edge GMT that they released a few months ago, comes in a number of colorways. The one I got is the, uh, sort of a copper brown dial 
It's the, um, the boutique edition and it's just a really cool watch. I mean, it's, you know, I'm into Seiko and I have, um, some experience with a number of Grand Seikos that I have. And I would say, you know, legitimately, this is not quite up to that construction and build standard, but you know, there's maybe three quarters of the value for about one quarter of the price of the kind of the, the Grand Seiko equivalent. And it's a, just a really interesting, complicated watch. This has a, uh, this has an actual, you know, what is sometimes now referred to as a, a, um, flyer GMT. I think that's kind of a misnomer. It's a, a pilot GMT is what I would call it. So it's got an independently adjustable hour hand that you can jump fore and aft on the dial, you know, without having to, um, hack the movement. It's got a power reserve indicator. Um, it's got a pointer date. It looks kind of like a lot of people think it's going to be a running seconds subdial, but that pointer date and uh, exhibition case back. And it's just really kind of cool and it's really reasonable in terms of price. So yeah, I was, I was stoked to get the call that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd put my name down for this one and uh, went in and looked at him and I got to see while I was there a number of the the new things from Seiko in the past, you know, maybe two, three months that have kind of, we've all seen sort of renders or, or, you know, the marketing pictures on the internet and, um, everything looks good right now. Huge. Congrats, man. That's amazing. Can you tell us where you picked it up from? Uh, this is from Feldmar. So this is the, um, sort of the, I jokingly, I'd call sort of the preferred AD of this show. And yeah, it was very cool. Although our, our friend Jimmy was not in today. I think Jimmy is vacationing, but Anyway, so yeah, I guess the, I guess uh, even watchmakers and uh, and and watch uh, you know AD employees get time off from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. To, everyone's got to have some time <laughs> off. <laughs> they do. Yep, they yep. Do. Well, I'm so glad you got the the brown one. I think it's a stunning dial. Um, and in fact, I'm thinking you know I've got a latte dial on today, and I think you've got you know a coffee no cream dial on today. So uh, you know, all all told, um, pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's a really cool dial. And as an aside, and we'll talk offline, but the um, I was wrong about that blue dial variant. It's really, really good. It's much better in person than in pictures. So if you have an opportunity, that's worth checking out. So that's the watches. What's in the glass, Greg? Well, you know, considering uh, who who our guest was and where there where Cameron is located these days, I thought it'd be a fun riff and and kind of turn it around. I'm usually on here with some kind of tequila or mezcal or something. And, uh, the, my wife got me some, uh, Luxardo cherries for father's day. And, uh, and so I thought it was a perfect reason and opportunity to make an old fashioned. So ran out to the store, uh, grabbed some, uh, wild Turkey one Oh one. And, uh, my friend, uh, if anybody knows the high West saloon is a friend of mine. He lives nearby. He's got a great home bar. He said, anybody that doesn't like wild Turkey, uh, has no taste. And so I figured this was, if it was wild good, Turkey book, is so undervalued it's yes. unbelievable that's it's right so tasty yeah it's tasty and inexpensive you can get Easy it anywhere get. Yeah, yeah exactly the accessibility the the value on it so um anyway so that was a great pour made a nice little old-fashioned through a, a luxardo in there and i figured it might jump us off talking about bourbon you know beer and other things but um cameron what do you have in the glass so i actually went the other way i went to tequila <laughs> i i did a little cocktail with a grapefruit elderflower uh this this soda company in i think it's north carolina they make this grapefruit elderflower soda and i mixed it with a little bit of uh uh portaleza blanco yeah 
That is that is spirit of time approved. That is a that right? is a cocktail <laughs> that is easy to make and delicious with perfect ingredients, man. That sounds so good on a on a hot summer Friday. Yeah. Yeah, very good choice. Matt, what do well, you have in the glass? So I kind of went the same direction as as Cameron. I went with the uh the El Tesoro Blanco, and this is just a neat pour for me today. So um didn't try to make a cocktail. I've just got you know, two fingers in the glass here. Salute and cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. Part of me wishes I went agave so I could have matched everybody. But on the same on the same token, I'm kind of glad I maybe took everybody for a spin. You know, everybody was probably expecting me to do that. So, yeah. No, and that's in, cool. And in fact, the last time, Cameron, I don't know if you remember the last time that I saw you in person, we were at a mezcal tasting in downtown Los Angeles. That's right. Uh, yeah, that was a really fun time. Uh, and uh, I was hoping we would have done it again by now. But of course, you know, the world got turned on its head. But that was a really fun time. You were able to come out to downtown and spend some time sipping on mescals and catching up. And so uh, I was thinking about that as we prepped for the week and was looking forward to seeing your face again. Yeah. Well, hey, let's dive into kind of the main topic, because obviously, Cameron, you are the main topic today. I we you know sent along a few questions that we wanted to kind of uh, kick around, but can we start? I mean, we have to assume, you know, that there's a, a significant minority. I think of the people listening probably don't really know your story. Can you give like the kind of the sixty second you know elevator pitch as to what your background is and and who you are? Yeah, so I went to uh, I went to a watchmaking school to become a certified watchmaker which gets you you going on the basics, really. It, it teaches you about the history of watchmaking, how to make components for watches, a lot of repair, the theory behind watchmaking and, and movements and things like that. Sets you up mainly for after-sales service, for repairing watches. So from there, I worked for Audemars Piguet, and I did some watch repair, and I helped in sales, uh, helped training salespeople so that they knew what they were talking about especially when they get some of the the technical watch buyers who are really i mean they know more than the the typical salesperson it can be tricky to have a a valuable conversation with a salesperson if they don't understand the the watches as well as some of these technical buyers so i helped out in that that area for them then I worked for Vacheron Constantine, and I went to Switzerland and, and trained in complicated movements there. And that really opened my eyes to making watches. Prior to that, I knew I wanted to try and make my own watch, but I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant. Even after going through watchmaking school and working for AP, I didn't fully understand what it meant to make a watch. But going to Switzerland and working in Vacheron's workshop, talking with the guys there, making uh, the Grand Complication watches, literally two guys in like a 2,000 square foot room, just the two of them, one older, one younger, uh, and the transfer of knowledge between those two. So probably about 15 years, there's only going to be one guy in that workshop. And it's, it's a dying art. It was unbelievable to see that kind of thing in, in their workshops. So from there, I came back to the U.S., worked for Vacheron for a while, and I decided it was a good time for me to try and 
make my own watches. So I started Weiss Watch Company. Uh, we're at eight years now. We just celebrated an eight-year anniversary on June 1st. Wow, congratulations. So, yeah. So we've been around for eight years now uh, since we launched. Obviously, before that, I was prototyping in my apartment and just coming up with designs for about a year. Um, and then we really we're fortunate we had some success pretty early on sold sold a good amount of watches within the first few months and i realized that that was you know this could have a real future and people are interested in a more accessible but still mechanical and traditional watch uh something that is made in the u.s there one thing i noticed that at vacheron constantine was me being the watchmaker, I dealt with repairs. And the people that I dealt with were typically Americans who had purchased watches uh, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and they were in need of service. But when they would see the, the prices in the display cases for the current day Vacheron watches, they couldn't understand it. They couldn't wrap their head around those prices. Uh, even though they had the money, it was hard for them to, to consider themselves a current Vacheron customer because the prices have gone up so much on the Swiss watches. So I saw that there's a, a huge interest with Americans, but not necessarily in that 20,000 plus price point for the fine watches that, that are coming out of Switzerland today. So Cameron, you made a great point. I think you know there was a, a space that you saw in in kind of the watch buyer um kind of market and I, you guys have obviously done a great job you know filling that um how would you describe your watches you know that were now that we understand sort of maybe where the origin story was and, and kind of where you, you you thought you could make an impact um you know what sort of person do you think they're meant for um and then what parts of the watch are you building and assembling because i think that's a, a really uh, big point of uh, of interest and and pride yeah, so the watches that uh, that I've designed have been I, timeless. Would would probably be the the way I would describe it. Um, the the whole goal when I designed the original field watch, um, which there haven't been many modifications to it, just minor changes over the past eight years. It still looks like the same watch overall, which is something I wanted to do because I've seen success of companies like Rolex with a watch like the Submariner or the Datejust. If you change something too much and reinvent yourself every year, then how could it possibly be timeless? Um, so sticking to a design that I really loved, and first of all, finding that design was a huge part of uh, the first year of me just figuring out what we were going to do. And we launched with just one black dial field watch, super simple. Um, legible, mechanical. Uh, I wanted it to be manually winding so that it was a good a good way to remember every single day when you put your watch on and wind it that it is in fact different from a quartz watch or something, something automatic even. I'm not saying an automatic watch is bad. I'm just saying that a manual watch reminds you that you have a mechanical watch. Save the manuals. Whereas automatic and quartz, 
could be a similar user experience of simply putting it on and wearing it. And it's always on the right time if you are moving. Yeah, so you have to be deliberate about interacting with your watch as a as an owner. Yeah. And I it just seemed like a lot of different things, even in the beverage industry as well. Like the this newfound interest of how was that tequila made? And everything that goes into it, it makes people slow down when they sip that tequila and see if they can pull some of that experience of the making out as they're consuming it instead of just shooting back tequilas really quick in the bar. Um, And I think the American consumer has changed a little bit, wanting to know more of the history and the creation and the people behind the product. So a manual wine watch is a good way to to remember that every single morning, just like I do a, a pour over coffee in the morning takes me slightly longer, but I, I'm more in tune with that coffee and I have more fun doing it. You're speaking our language. That's uh, I, I think it's a beautiful ethos for, for, you know, the, the company. Um, and I think it also speaks to, like you said, some general trends in how we're, um, looking at the things that we enjoy and, and consume. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a, a reminder that people love to have. Right. So I guess the other part of your question was about the, the making of the parts, right? So even the most simple mechanical watch that's manually winding, not even automatic, will have around 150 parts. So we're talking 150 parts crammed into a tiny, it could be as small as like a 34 millimeter case if you're dealing with an old old watch or some of these tiny little Elgin watches that were even smaller than that, but we won't get into that. Just as far as modern day goes, you're looking at about an average 40 millimeter case size with at least 150 pieces in it for a mechanical watch. So in our watch, we've got around 200 pieces and we have the standard issue, which is what we started with and we still produce today. The standard issue is a mix of Swiss parts and American parts. Um, We've always been doing our cases and dials and straps, the boxes that come with the watch. That's always been uh, made in LA or another area in the US. Um, But movement components, there was no way I could immediately, right off the bat, start making movement components. Uh, so that took us a few years before we got into machining components in-house. Uh, like I said, cases, dials, that stuff, we would machine with partner machine shops, uh, mostly around Los Angeles. And then I could hand finish those parts with smaller, more typical watchmaking equipment, polishing wheels, and, uh, and then doing the assembly and, and that sort of thing at my house. So it was an easier way to get in that way. Making a watch movement uh, takes a bit more equipment to do it in any kind of scale. And there's nobody in the US making parts like that, that you could call up, no job shop that you could call up and say, I need a main plate and here's my, here's my drawings. They have no idea how to do the, how to reach those tolerances and 
the types of finishing that we need and burr free, all these things. It's just, it's totally new to the U.S. Um, or it's returning to the U.S., I should say. It used to be here, but it's, it's long gone. So we got into machining of movement parts and we were able to start machining our own bridges and main plates. We even make pinions now uh, and screws. We do laser cutting of wheels. So we can make almost anything inside of the watch except for any springs. We don't do any springs. We don't do any jewels. That stuff is all contracted out. Uh, um, and then what else do we have? We got the hands. The hands we do not make. We contract that out. Uh, but in our workshop, we can make almost everything. That's not to say every single watch we make has all of our in-house made components, but we make as much as we can here. And then we use our partner shops to, to machine the other components that we need. And then there's a few odds and ends. We have to still source from Switzerland, hair springs, main springs, uh, jewels, ink block shock protection. These are components that are proven components that are extremely hard to develop as an independent. And even if you were able to engineer them as an independent, the equipment that it takes to manufacture them, and then once you've manufactured them, you still have to test them. You still have to pair hair springs with balance wheels, get the weights correct. To do this for a, like, a small size company is just, not possible. Um, much easier for a, a tiny workshop that makes three watches a year to make a steel hairspring, something along the lines of what you might find in the George Daniels watchmaking books, making a watch start to finish. But if you try to bump that up to even 30 pieces a year, not possible. <laughs> That's a great point. I hadn't considered the 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 relative diversity in independent watchmaking in like you said, the small to medium to large and there there's a great variance in there and I hadn't really considered that. Yeah. Yeah, the differences you'll see between a small workshop and also price-wise if you try and compare uh say a a perpetual calendar coming out of a workshop the size of Audemars Piguet and a perpetual calendar coming out of a workshop the size of like Philippe Dufour, you're going to see that every component that goes into that watch is made in a very different way. And that's going to be a big reason why the prices are so different. They also have different stories, but you start with very different products, even though the end result is a perpetual calendar from both companies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for the listener, you know, we're, we're recording this and we have Cameron and we can kind of see him and the view behind Cameron is of his workshop. And, you know, there's some significant equipment here. I can see a, a CNC machine behind you. It looks like there's some, um, what I'm assuming are like, you know, test machines and, and other types of, of equipment. And, you know, that stuff is not cheap. So 
yeah, it's a, a significant capital investment to make any watch components, especially the components that go into the movement. Because like I said, uh, you can't just call up somebody that makes pinions here in the US and say, I need a module, you know, module point two, and this, you can't tell them those basics and, and get a good product from them. Good luck. I made this, um, yeah. this metaphor to Matt the other day, and I wanted to throw it at you, see what you think of it. It's almost like a, a winery, right? And as they're getting ready to build out their program, you know, of course they're growing the grapes and then they're starting to barrel things, but you know, you're waiting for the red wine to age. And that's where, you know, of course, a lot of, you know, vintners are really excited to do work with their red. And, and of course there's a higher, you know, margin there and it's more desirable, but while you're doing that, you have to sell your white wine, right? So that you can continue to reinvest back into the company and to do the R and D and these other things that you're talking about. Um, is that a good metaphor or not? Cause like, this is the spirit of time podcast. So I got to bring the two together. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great, great metaphor. Um, it, and even within the, the alcohol industry, it's similar. Like if you, I'm sure you'll see it. I'm not so much of a, I, I enjoy drinking wine, but I don't know so much about wine. Um, but if you get into the whiskey, you can go through a liquor store and there's a lot of different labels, but what's inside the bottle was probably distilled at the same location as the thing in the next, you know, with the next label and the next label, it's really just selecting what you like for your palate and your brand, the types of, the type of whiskey that your client expects to receive when they purchase from you. Uh, you know, there's a taste that the client has come to expect and getting that taste into your bottle is very important. So it's not so much about the production of it, but the selection of it. And you see that a lot in watchmaking as well. Um, some of my favorite brands, they don't necessarily make the watch start to finish, but they've selected some of the finest components. And because I'm a little bit of a, a nerd when it comes to getting into the movements and, and the background of, of the components and the history of the movement and that sort of thing, that intrigues me when a company has selected something to go inside of their watch that is very interesting to me. And what the watch looks like could actually take a bit of a backseat and the brand name that's on there could take a bit of a backseat, but knowing what they selected to go inside is important to me. That makes sense. I, uh, I can relate actually, you know, it's, um, I think there's probably a lot of, you know, areas of enthusiasm where once you've kind of crossed a certain threshold of knowledge, you know, the, the content is more important than the packaging in terms of value. Um, I, I want to take us back just briefly because we've talked a little bit about the uh, the field watch. You also, so when I think of that, I'm thinking of, you know, the larger of the watches, but you also have a somewhat smaller format as well. There's a, a 38 millimeter piece. Yeah. That so has, we do a, do you have a question? Oh, well, I was, I go ahead and finish your thought. I was going to ask, is it my imagination or was that piece? Cause it's a hand wound, right? Yes. Was it prior to that? Did you have a smaller automatic? Okay, so we started with our 42 millimeter field watch manual wine. 
we then created a 38 millimeter automatic. That's the one I'm that thinking. was just a, a limited run. Um, so we did a 38 millimeter automatic. Then, because we had such good response on the 38 millimeter size, I thought it'll make a lot more sense for us to have a 38 millimeter annual wine that is a staple in our line. So they'll have the 38 millimeter and 42 manual wine standard issue field watch. Yeah, got it. It's an attractive watch. I I've took a look at the website recently and, you know, the few things that jumped out at me was, you know, wait, I was kind of doing the, you know, wait, am I seeing things? Is that, has that always been a, a hand wine? Of course. And yeah. then the, you know, the dial doesn't say Los Angeles anymore. Um, yeah. Are there any, any plans to introduce different models at any point, you know, in the future? So we have one new model that I'm starting to produce right now. It's a, uh, it's our, it's another automatic issue. However, because of the movement we're using, we're able to keep it much thinner than it was before. So it's only, I, I believe it's point, uh, 0.2 millimeters thicker than the manual wine. Okay. So it's an extremely thin automatic watch, uh, 38 millimeter, and it has a date. So it's a little different than what we've done before because we do not have a sub second hand, central sweeping second hand with the date. So it's the first watch we've done with a central second hand and a date. Uh, but the proportions just, everything worked out so nice with the movement that we've got going in there. Nice, thin, easy to wear automatic. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having those so that I can start wearing one. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Are you able to, um, or are you comfortable saying a little bit about the movement or is that something you want to wait on? No, no, we can talk about the movement. Let me just pull up my notes here on it. Sure. Man, this is huge, guys. So we, we got a new watch alert on Matt's wrist, and now we got like fresh, hot off the press, breaking news from uh, Weiss Watch Company. This is incredible. Yeah, so this is, I mean, it's, it's super brand new. You can hop on our website and essentially pre-purchase one. Um, they're 1650 bucks, so it's a little bit more than our standard issue. Um, but like I said, you have a date and central central second hand with the automatic. Uh, so on this watch, I wanted to have something that was going to be thin because one of my biggest pet peeves with going to an automatic is that it starts to become thick and it can be kind of floppy on the wrist, feel a little out of pr- proportion especially when you have a strap instead of a bracelet. Um, So keeping it thin was important to me. So on that movement, we've got, it's a a Soprod M100 base. So it's it's another movement that is just like a workhorse, similar to the, the ETA movements that we've worked with before. Um, it's from a manufacturer that they have a, a long history and I don't, if you know a little bit about this movement, it's history actually goes back to Seiko. Um, so it's just, it's a, a very solid automatic movement. 
that is easy to work on, easy to service, and I think it looks really great. Um, other variants would be like a 2892 uh, from Eda, or of course you've got Salida that produces a, another movement that's in a similar, similar range. Sure. But the M100 base is actually quite a bit different in terms of the, the layout of the bridges and the, the layout of wheels and, and things. So it has a different aesthetic that I think looks much better and lends itself to nicer decorations. You're right about it being a, a thin, you know, in regards to an automatic, it is, it is a really svelte, I would say. And, you know, not seeing the sub seconds on there is a bit of a shock at a, for a moment, you know, cause it's so associated with, with the, with the field watch. Um, but it, it looks fantastic, you know, and having the date yeah. window at six o'clock, it's a really, really attractive striking piece. Right. Yeah. So that was another thing I was, I was so tired of, there are some watches that don't bother me so much when they have like that white background on the date with, on the date wheel. Uh, and say a black dial or a blue dial with this bright white window that pops up. But for me on the field watch, because we don't have, um, like a dive watch might have a large silver or white indice at, you know, uh, across the dial and you can kind of balance it with a white date window. To me on the field watch, that would look very out of place. So I wanted to make sure that we went tone on tone so that the, the, the background on the day wheel is actually matching the dial. So it blends in a little bit without shocking you. If we had an applause, um, an applause sound bite, I would use it now. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it comes in under 10 millimeters thick. Wow. For an automatic watch. So it's really a nice everyday wear kind of watch. Yeah, that's going to definitely bear a second look. Um, when do you think that's going to be available? I should send out the first few pieces. Um, looks like about September. Okay, that's right around, yeah, right yeah. around the corner. Yeah, right around the corner. I mean, once I had the first the first pieces, um, since we're doing all the machining of the cases and everything, it's just a matter of getting everything ramped up, getting our dials painted. Uh, getting our hands in and again with this I like having a simple line of watches that are timeless another thing I really like is being able to switch straps between every single watch so again all watches that we make 20 millimeters at the at the case so if you already have a bunch of 20 millimeter straps you don't have to go out looking for like a 19 millimeter strap um so 20 millimeter, it also keeps our inventory easy so that we don't have to invest in a whole other set of straps or one different watch. So things like that, I think it's really important to, to think about that so you can really focus on putting the investment into the watch itself. Because for, the, for most watch buyers, a strap, it's only going to last a year or less. And you'll move on to other straps, different straps, maybe even much quicker than that, new straps every week or two, uh, trying different things out. So to be able to, as the watch company, put that investment into the watch itself instead of the strap, when you have new products, it helps us 
give a better product for a more reasonable price. You know, that's smart. And I've always loved your canvas straps. I think not only do they fit the aesthetic perfectly, but they're just really nice, great straps. And, um, I'm sitting here with the, uh, one of the Horweens and, um, this is fantastic, man. I haven't had a chance to really spend time with, with the Horween straps that you guys do. And it's, it's just a awesome, it's just butter on the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the Horween leather. Oh man. We have an amazing strap maker. Um, he's in St. Paul and he's friends with the Horween family. Wow. So he can call up, he can call up, um, it's Nick Horween and he can get you know, small enough quantities that we can get some of the greatest leathers from them. Super supple. They feel amazing right from the start. It's just, they're great straps. I love them. Yeah, I got my first Horween leather strap about a year, year and a half ago. And I don't know what I'd you know, been missing until I tried that. And it's like, oh my, okay, this is what everybody's talking about in terms of the quality <laughs> yeah. of the feel. It's just, um, it, yeah, it's just, it's very, very different. And uh, yeah, super, super cool. Greg, you've spent some time now with that watch. Like overall, you know, for, for people who have not had an opportunity to, to live with a Weiss watch, you know, what are, what are some of your thoughts? It's, uh, you know, the point that Cameron made earlier about getting up and, and winding your watch every day, it struck me over the last, you know, week or so, you know, I have a, a couple manual wind watches, but I don't wear them strictly. And so, you know, I might wear them for a day or two, you know, and then you wind them up the next time you put them on. But, but the, the, the sort of uh, routine of getting up every day and winding it has been awesome. And that part, I think I missed even in my own collection of manual winds. Um, and so that's, you know, been a really fun thing to do. Um, it's got a big, beautiful open case back with great striping. Um, it's just a, it's a joy to look at from both the front and the back, right? Um, which is kind of fun. This latte dial is super interesting in my opinion. Um, and I think it sort of predates some of the salmon dial kind of craze that's been coming up over the last whatever, you know, more recent. And then, you know, even some of the browns and kind of more, you know, kind of uh, dial colors we haven't seen. And, and so I think this is, you guys have been doing this for a while and I think it kind of speaks yeah. a little bit to, you know, maybe some of the foresight you've had and some of the uniqueness of, of your pieces. Um, so I think that strikes people. You don't see this a lot still even today, but less so, I think, even as you introduced it. Yeah. Yeah. It was seven years ago when we did the the first latte dials. Um, and really that was, like I said, I, I wake up and I, I do a pot of uh, Chemex. I do a pour over every morning. Um, and when I, when I go on vacation, one of the first things I'm looking up is where can I get good coffee? And I don't mean, you know, some people's idea of good coffee. I mean, my idea of the fanciest, uh, fanciest hipster coffee I could possibly find, <laughs> uh, is what I'm looking for. So having visited a lot of different coffee shops and met a lot of different, um, a lot of different people in the coffee industry, even who, enjoy watches just as much as they enjoy coffee. I thought I need to like, I love salmon dials. Some of the vintage salmon dials that I've seen at auction and stuff like that. But I think me having such a connection with coffee, I should, I should try and find a color that goes towards that latte spectrum. 
uh, and I just, I loved it and it was successful. It's still a super unique color that you really don't see in watches. You'll see like creamy white dials. That's right. And then the salmon dials, but you don't see something with a little more coffee to it, a little more brown. You nailed it. Yeah. And as I was wearing it all week, you know, my wife said, what, what color is that? That's, that's so cool. I've never, you never see that on anybody's watch and you're right. It's not cream. It's not salmon. It, it's, 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 it's tone. It's, it's certainly it's right. own. Yeah. Yeah. The, the latte Dell is the one to have, I think. Hey, you know, yeah, I, I of, love that color. Yeah. Speaking of dial colors, um, and I, I don't want to open a can of worms and I did not tell you I was going to ask this question cause I didn't know, but I just thought of it. It strikes me that, um, Farah talks about, you know, a, a unique, like paint to match dial or paint to sample, however you put it twice yeah, that now, you were I able, think. yeah, that you were able to do for him. Um, is that something that can be done as a one-off for somebody who's interested in getting, you know, kind of, I guess, as close as you can get to, you know, a piece unique, uh, Weiss watch. Is that something you can do for people? I don't want to put you on the spot. You can say the, no. the quick answer is no. Okay. <laughs> really, the the number of unique dials out there, it's less than ten wow. in the last eight years. So it's pretty rare. Um, Matt happens to have two that are unique colors that won't be produced in any other way. He's got a, like a beautiful Bugatti blue uh, American issue field watch, and then he has the first automatic as well. Um, that is a, it's a banana yellow automatic with, uh, and same thing, matching date wheel. So that we did a custom date wheel that has the banana yellow paint for the background. It's just, he has some very unique watches from us. I remember him talking about that one. I, I'm not going to mention any names or anything, but I think there's a play on words, right? With this name of his spouse. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, so her name I, is I, Anna. I do remember. I do remember exactly. that watch. Yep. So it's a banana yellow automatic issue. Um, and it's the first one that, that we actually put out there. Um, so he's the only person with an automatic. I don't even have one right now because our, uh, our photographer has the, the standard ones, the standard colors that we're releasing. He's got all those. So him and then, uh, Hannah, <laughs> it's good company, really. Yeah. Um, so you know, a little less exclusive, but I think still some. Ex- you have done some other exclusives, right? I'm thinking of um, the Birdwell uh, collaboration yeah. that you guys did, and I, th- I want to think there's there's I want to say there's at least one or at least one other um, that you've done. Alan Edmonds. Yes, yeah, so we've done we've done a collaboration with Alan Edmonds, um, and that was a, an American issue. So we have two different watches essentially we have the standard issue the american issue standard issue is going to have those swiss parts in the movement like i was talking about earlier uh, and a mix of american and u.s made uh, or not american and u.s made a mix of swiss parts and american made parts assembled uh, in our workshop and then the american issue is where we actually are putting those movement parts the bridges wheels pinion screws into the watch. So that one has an American movement as well. Um, still there's components that we can't make in the U S like those springs and, and jewels and stuff like that. Uh, but that one's pretty much almost all American made. Right on. 
Well, hey, let's move on if it's okay to to a, a slightly different phase of the conversation because you know I think as Greg and I know you and a lot of our listeners who are here in Southern California know you as having been a fixture really for a pretty good long time right around here Southern California and in, in the watch scene. Um, you know, you're not here anymore. What prompted the move to Tennessee? So, I have been well. We were in LA and. I love LA. I I have my surfboards here in the new workshop, and they're just going to be hanging in the in the rafters, gathering dust now. Um, so there's a lot a lot that I miss in LA. But I was ready for a change, um, and I I've lived in Los Angeles, San Diego, Seattle, Miami, New York, uh, Switzerland. And I spent a short period of time in Dallas working at Richemont there um, while I was with Vacheron. And being in LA for the like nine or so years that we had been there, or I guess eight something years, we just, we were ready for change. And I wanted to, I wanted to try and establish ourselves a little more by buying a building and getting um, being able to enlarge our manufacturing footprint in the U.S. essentially. So our lease was coming up and we were right in the middle of uh, COVID lockdowns. And I just said, now's the time. We got to do this now and we'll get everything moved because it's a perfect, perfect time where there's a natural downtime that we can use this to, to get this done. So now we are, I'm sitting here doing this podcast from, from Nashville, Tennessee. It's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think we can sympathize. I mean, it's, you know, for, for people who are not familiar, I'm sure everybody can kind of, you know, put two and two together. There are certain places that just, you know, from a cost standpoint are probably not the easiest when it comes to expanding like your physical plant. And, you know, Los Angeles and, you know, maybe New York City, places like that, where it's just everything is just that much more expensive. So, you know, good for you. I'm insanely jealous because I've, I've <laughs> through work in my, in, you know, early part of my life, I used to travel to Tennessee a lot and um, both to Nashville and more to Memphis. And I really like Nashville a lot. So I, I could conceive of ending up there at some point. Nashville is a you, great city. Yeah, it is. Well, and this is what I wanted to ask. So, um, what are you finding in terms of like, how does the Tennessee beer and booze scene compare to Los Angeles? You know, it's a lot more accessible, I think. Um, one problem I had, so our workshop in, uh, in LA was in Torrance, which we had great beer right there in Torrance. That's right. One of my favorite breweries was Monkish, which their beer was unbelievable, but they got so popular to the point that I couldn't even go there. It was just too crowded. And I, I couldn't see waiting in these lines for like an hour to get a beer. So I hadn't been to Monkish in a very long time. Um, but yeah, it, even though they were right around the corner and we had all those breweries, it was much more crowded, harder to, harder to get these beers. People are buying beers and flipping them and trading them. And like, bots online trying to buy these release beers. Anyway, it's a lot more low key here, uh, but great beer. Um, we've got a couple of my favorites would be Southern Grist, 
which is right here in Nashville, and Bearded Iris, also right here in Nashville. And the, the creativity of the beers coming out of these places is unbelievable. And I think in a city like Nashville, you can afford to be a little more creative. You can try things out, and if it doesn't work, toss it. You know, but when you're in a very cutthroat, uh, expensive location, it can be hard to experiment as much as you'd like to. Uh, it's almost like like living in uh, an arts district before it is named an arts district. Everything's less expensive. You can have a giant warehouse, and you can just you can create the art that you want to create. So it, all of Nashville feels like this amazing arts district um, before it's really been recognized as an arts district yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, don't tell anybody. Don't don't let them wreck it before I get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. I'm hoping the scene there in terms of what's offered is not, you know, like uh, like Southern California or California in general, where, you know, you go to even a, a pretty good liquor store and you look at the beers on offer and it's going to be, here's an IPA, an IPA, another kind of IPA, a double IPA. Here's an Imperial Pale Ale, uh, you know, a, a super duper triple hopped, you know, burn your face off. Uh, it's so bitter IPA. And then um, here's a, a Guinness. And, it, you yeah. know, hopefully it's a little uh, bit you- more... The selection here is amazing. Um, you can get everything from from all your. They're they're even doing West Coast style IPAs if that's your thing. But they've got the juicier IPAs. They've got um, Southern Grist has like three or four different pilsners that I've tried that are have just been unbelievable. Some with French uh, French roots. Some are like French German, and then they've got like a West Coast style pilsner that's just unbelievable also the sours and a wild amount of um fruited beers and fooder age beers that are just unbelievable i've been on a super so, sour a kick myself. yeah yeah this is making me want to come out there i you know could do like a, a quick 48 hour you know get off the plane and blitz three or four or five places I mean, you've got uh, music, you've got music, you've got beer, you've got Weiss watches, you've got bourbon. I mean, that's pretty much, I don't know what else you need. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about it here. Uh, I've noticed that a couple of weeks ago, I was driving to and from the workshop a few times a day from my house. And I just thought, man, if I did that in LA... I wouldn't get anything done. I'd, I'd just be sitting in my car the entire day, just with three trips to the office and back. Uh, here, it's 10 minutes to the office, 10 minutes back, pretty much no matter what the traffic is like. In LA, I was driving an hour to the office and it could be an hour 20 back. So it's just, it's a much smaller, less sprawling place. Yeah, no, that's good. That sounds like a nice change. Yeah. But Greg, to your point, what else do you need? You need hot chicken and they have that there too. So. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I guess all of our hot chicken is really just an import from Nashville. So. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, hey, this is kind of my final question. Um, 
you know, I mean, obviously we've been talking about Weiss watches and I'd encourage anybody who's listening, check out the website. If, you know, especially if you've um, never met Cameron and do not know the story, you know, now that Cameron's kind of further out, you know, in the, uh, in the East and, you know, maybe more Midwest accessible, Mid-South accessible, as things open up, I can, in my mind, I'm picturing you at like Red Bar Nashville meetups and Red Bar Cincinnati. You know, there's a guys on another podcast that I listen to, the Whiskey and Watches guy. I think they have a pretty active Red Bar group. Um, the girls at 10 and 2, I think they're part of a, a pretty active group. And, you know, that's something that I can absolutely see in your future. Um, but we've talked about Weiss. Let me ask you this. Other than Weiss watches, what are some of your favorite brands? Um, favorite brands, I, the obvious ones, Vacheron and AP, right, right. Um, my personal history with them was so, so positive. Um, like with AP, when I left, they gave me a gift when I left and I had never experienced that with anyone else. They were so happy for me to go work for Vacheron and it was just like, they really cared. It was like a AP is still a, a relatively small company. Um, I think when I worked there, it was like a hundred, 150 people in the U S and that was it. Uh, obviously there's a few thousand in Switzerland, but the AP North America was just like 130 or 140 people. So it was just a tight knit family knowing the people behind the brand really influences me a lot. Um, so I'd say AP and Vacheron. Other than that, I don't really, those are the watches that I, I drool over would be Vacheron and AP. Yeah. No, I think you could be excused for that. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I was about to ask you, and I think you just kind of hinted at it and uh, you know, what sort of like qualities or virtues that you value as a watchmaker, you know, in a brand. Cause I think you have a, maybe a unique point of view that even, even a really well-informed collector does not, you know, in as much as you, you just have had a, a completely different experience in the industry. Um, but you, the thing that you just said about having that kind of connection with the brand, um, and the people in the brand that that's an extraordinary thing. And I think that's what collectors and, you know, even sort of more casual enthusiasts really like, you know, there's, I imagine there's, it's no secret why your brand has been successful or, you know, other brands that reach out and connect with people, you know, where you can actually talk to, you know, one of the principals. It, that's a great experience as a collector. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. I think it's very important. You're, you're Especially also in something like watches. Yeah. You're also sort of a, a vintage watch um, kind of you know, collector as well, or at least, a you know, enthusiast, right? Is there, you know, I, I feel like we talk a lot of modern, you know, for sure. Um, tell us what's kind of interests you on, on the vintage side. Um, on vintage. So I, I am a big fan of vintage watches. Um, I really like some of the old defunct brands that used to make chronographs that don't exist anymore. Um, there was thousands of different brands yeah. that were putting their names on dials and, and exporting watches from Switzerland. Uh, that kind of thing 
really interests me because it fits within my budget. They're not like very high priced uh, because there are lots of them available. When you start getting into some of the vintage watches that are like the vintage Rolex and uh, vintage AP and things like that, that are going crazy, that's outside my realm. I enjoy it, but it's nothing I could ever, or I wouldn't even want to be involved in it. It would be too stressful. Yeah, we enjoy uh, those ones from afar. Yeah, in fact, I had a few opportunities to to purchase, work when I was working for AP, to purchase A-Series, Royal Oaks, the Jumbos, for what were like tiny amounts of money compared to what they're going for now. And I'm actually pretty happy I did not buy them because if I had bought them, I would be so stressed thinking that I have this six figure watch that I, I want to wear, but I can't wear it. There's no way. What do you have? You have to sell it, you know, because when it, it, this bubble could burst and you just don't know. So to me, that just seemed like it would be way too stressful and I don't really want to be involved with that. I like watches because I want to wear them and be reminded of the making of that watch when I actually look down and see it on my wrist, not when I think about it in a drawer or in a safety deposit box somewhere. But, uh, right. Yeah. Or is unrealized gains on like the balance sheet in your mind? You know, it's yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a huge, the- it's a huge stress now. I think you're right. It's, and that's been a, a relatively recent, or at least it's been accelerated, right? That's, it's probably been for some time, but it's been accelerated to such a high degree right now that I think people are struggling with that. And it's a very, it's just a very tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I worked with AP, they, you could go in there and you could buy a jumbo at a boutique. They were, we always had one jumbo at every boutique all the time. That was like the goal for us was to make sure that you could get that jumbo uh, and nobody wanted it because you could get the uh, you could get the uh, the regular version, not the ultra thin. So the modern version that had uh, it cost five thousand dollars less, and you could get it in different colors. So nobody wanted the jumbo because they didn't get it. You know, doesn't have quick set date, doesn't have the same water resistance. It's not as thick and chunky, so it wasn't as popular. It was. It's very different back then. You know, don't speculate, folks, basically, because yeah. you just, right? I mean, that just that sums it up for us, I think. It's just like, you just can't tell. You just really can't tell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do like the uh, kind of like not quite vintage, but I like late 90s and early 2000s yeah. for like for getting really good bargains on watches that are typically from that time, they're not in production anymore, but they're not vintage. Um, so you can get some really good high quality watches for a reasonable price in that time period. I agree a hundred percent. That's a sweet spot. I think, um, you know, whether you want to call it Neo vintage or whatever, you're getting sort of modern, robust, you know, watchmaking, but you're getting, you know, you can find some, you know, like you said, some value there and, um, just some really great pieces. And in that time frame, there's a, there's just really, there's fun stuff to collect there. Yeah. And almost all the big brands that were seeing a resurgence in the late two thousands, if you go to their late 90s, early 2000s uh, products, 
the production numbers were so small. So you might think like, oh, Audemars Piguet has been making a Royal Oak or whatever it might be. Or for me, it was it was the Blanc Pond 50 Fathoms for me that drew me in. You know, and who knows how many? They're probably making 15,000 uh, 50 Fathoms a year at this point. But back then, they were making like 100. <laughs> so the production was so small just because they were new. Luxury watches were not, uh, they didn't have the mass appeal that they currently have. Yeah, there was a, um, I, so uh, Greg, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but about two years ago, I was um, shopping for a particular watch and it was, uh, you know, a, along the lines of what Cameron was just saying. So it was a, a Blanc Pond, the 50 Fathoms trilogy. So this was like late 90s, early 2000s, maybe even into the aughts. And it was one of these um, 50 Fathom Trilogy GMT watches. And I was just, you know, hovering over the add to cart a couple times over two, three, four days. And the watch just languished there. And I was like, oh, you know, okay, eventually I'm going to get this thing. And then one day I, you know, I was ready to do it. I went and it was gone. And like two days later, I saw it on uh, on the feed of Cameron Weiss. <laughs> It was like, oh, so yeah, I don't know if you remember that, Cameron, but we exchanged DMs about two years ago. Yeah. And you made exactly that point. It was like, you know, yeah. there's some really great value, you know, when you think about and, you know, that that watch in particular, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, that's a really well decorated. I think it's a four day Frederick Piquet movement, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a Frederick Piquet 1150 movement um, with special. It's a. 5A50, I think, is what Blancpain calls it. It's, you know, obviously decorated to a higher standard standard for them, and then also has the GMT uh, hand as well, because that was the GMT version of that trilogy series. Yeah, and it's just that. I mean, that particular you know reference from that brand is just one example, and I'm sure there's there's a ton. Yeah. And- there's there's one in particular that I'm thinking of right now that I don't even want to say because <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I'm not ready to buy yet. <laughs> yeah, keep, to, keep that cat in the bag. I don't want it to blow up. And uh yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, anyhow, um so Cameron, one of the things that we've done at least a few times, you know, we're still low in the episode count. So every episode is a little bit different, but you know, at the beginning, I think I'd intended to ask you a couple of questions just to get you, you know, warmed up, like kind of quick either or yes or no. First thing off the top of your head. Um, if you'll indulge me, even though it's kind of the end of the episode, will you let me kind of run through some of these? All right. So again, just, you know, first thing that comes to your head with these questions Tequila or bourbon? Ooh. Uh, that's a tough one, but I would probably say tequila right now. Yeah. It's hot. it's very hot here in the summer, so unless I'm mixing uh, and doing like a, a mint julep or something like that, then I like to go for a tequila. Super light, just sipping. Easy. Easy yeah, living. As Greg, Greg said, that is a... Uh, a time and tequila spirit of time approved answer. Yeah. Okay. Next one. If you could imagine, put yourself in this headspace, there's only one outdoor pastime for the rest of your life. Is it going to be surfing or mountain bikes? Um, surfing probably I'm, I'm getting into biking, but I'm not quite there yet that it's reached surfing level. 
Gotcha. Perhaps in due time. Yeah. Okay, next one. Swatch Group or Richemont? Richemont. No hesitation there. Yep, yep. (laughs) I think, yeah, you come by that answer, honestly. Okay, this is going to take a second. If, 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 let me explain this, but, um, or no, I'll just, I'll read it as I wrote it. How about this? Best in air quotes, watchmaking country other than Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Oh, USA. There you go. <laughs> right on, right on. Certainly history bears that out. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know, this might be a three foot putt, but I'm interested to see how you answer it. No pressure. Uh, best brand that doesn't get enough attention. No, the the stuff I like has been getting a lot of attention lately. Um, That's a really hard one for me. I could could conceive of you answering by saying Weiss Watches, but yeah, there's... (laughs) I wasn't sure if that was going to come across like a verbal trap. Yeah, I mean, I could say us, but I'm trying to think of something that might intrigue others to to look into something smaller. Um, but honestly, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Then I, I think, think the, then I think we stick with Weiss watches. Yeah, yeah. Weiss watches for this one. Well, and you make a good point. I mean, you know, legitimately you sort of answered the question a minute ago, right? What are two of your favorite brands? And there's, I mean, you know, Rolex, Vacheron and Audemars Piguet are probably the three hottest properties in watches for at least yeah. the past 18 months. So there's no shortage of attention. I wonder about Breguet. Hmm. I think Breguet needs a little more love, but you yeah. know, I, I agree. And I actually have always really appreciated Breguet. And I just wonder if they're, you know, they're, it feels like their classic aesthetic is just not the flavor of the month at the moment. Yeah. I think something that's a little tough for Swatch Group is the management of the brands and how they connect with each other a little too much. Um, and when I say connect, I mean essentially not trying to connect them. Like Blancpain does this. Uh, Jack Droe does this. Reggae does this, and we don't want to interrupt these other brands at all. We don't want to step on anyone's toes. This is how it works. Stay in your lane kind of thing. Um, whereas the feeling from Richemont is a little more like independent for each brand. And you do you. Uh, it doesn't matter if, if your dive watch competes with our dive watch uh, or you make a minute repeater that repeats with that affects the sales of a Vacheron minute repeater or something like that. There was never any issue with that. Swatch Group, I think, has a little bit of that going on, which stifles some of the creativity of each brand. Difference in cultures. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point because I, I hadn't really thought of it like that. But when you say it like that, yeah, that's that actually seems pretty obvious. Even, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, it's like, okay, yeah, you can kind of see that happening. Yeah, because I Good think point. Breguet has a lot of history and a lot of watches in their pocket that they could be making that they are not making because it might 
step on the toes of another brand. Yeah, no, good, good point. Good insights. Well, Hey guys, uh, I think we're about to wrap up. We just get into some closing notes and Cameron, we'll loop you into this if you'd like what we, at this point, we just kind of riff a little bit on, you know, anything that we found recently, that's kind of something to recommend to the listeners, whether it's, you know, just something that's culturally relevant or a new, you know, watch resource or a cool movie or book or whatever. And not even watch related for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, any, I tell you what, we'll get, we'll get to you last if you want to think about that, but Greg, do you want to uh, lead off? Yeah. You know, there's a few things that struck me the last week or so that I think will, were kind of, of, of interest. So I follow a lot of the um, tequila and mezcal, you know, um, uh, social media and uh, um, kind of collector enthusiast groups. And of course, there's always a secondary market there, right? Of course, just like watches too and other things. And there was a bottle of Fortaleza Extra Añejo, which has never been commercially available. It's always been sort of the uh, wish on the wish list of every, basically every tequila fan, right? But especially every Fortaleza fan. And there was a special lot about two, three years ago, where they ran low on their Añejo um, uh, uh, barrels. And so they did actually mix in some extra Añejo. It was lot 42A and 43A, and people rushed out to grab them. I have some of them in the cabinet. But there's never been a commercially available, strictly extra Añejo. But apparently there were some gifted to some folks, um, you know, close to the brand. And one went for sale on, on the secondary market, uh, a week or two ago, and it fetched three thousand dollars, and I was I was really struck by that because that's definitely a high water mark for tequila. And I know bourbons and, and whiskeys can really get uh, kind of exponentially higher than that, but that's a really big number uh, for for a bottle of tequila. Um, and so that really was interesting to me. And as two Fortaleza drinkers, you know yourselves, I thought you would maybe find some interest in that. And then the last one thing I, I wanted to share with you, which I thought was interesting, I just caught an article in GQ yesterday and, and Scotty Pippen, uh, the, the Chicago Bulls great, has been making some rounds. He's a bourbon brand owner now, um, uh, ironically. And uh, But just the idea of celebrity brands have getting a lot of attention, not only in, in tequila, but of course, you know, the gins and the vodkas and, and the bourbons and whiskeys. And um, it just made me think, how do, how do these, how do the celebrities come about how do they come into this? Right. And he made a comment like, Oh, you know, my, my business partners kind of just said, you know, just rift, you know, off the, off the cuff, Hey, you should have a bourbon brand. You love bourbon. And so it was just interesting to me that, you know, sometimes I think these celebrities come in and maybe they're really, uh, you know, uh, uh, into a spirit or really deep into it. And I think sometimes it's, you know, quite frankly, just a business opportunity or proposition that's been posed to them. But, uh, I thought those were two interesting, um, things that came across this last week. Right on. Well, mine is a little bit different. Mine is, um, it's at least watch adjacent. I mean, nominally it's, it's a watch recommendation. Uh, and some people will have heard of this. This is a YouTube channel. It's called the timeless watch channel. And it's, it's hosted and produced by a guy named ocean O'Malley and oceans an Irishman. Um, it's probably, I, if I had to guess, I'd say he's about my age and he is an Irish expat living in Northern Italy. And the quality of his videos is so unreal. I gather that he has an adult daughter, you know, who is um, in film school. I don't know if it's, you know, an undergrad or graduate program or what have you, but, you know, obviously they have some f- at least high quality semi-professional equipment and definitely professional skills, especially the sound engineering and editing. And his, uh, his videos are just outstanding. Even when the 
the content being discussed is kind of like eh, the the background, the visuals. What he does is he takes the camera and the watches out into you know some place like on a Vaporetto in uh, in Venice, or you know walking little alleys in the Jewish quarter, or you know uh, at at um, what's like I'm I'm drawing a blank on the square St. Mark's you know, that kind of thing. And just everything is so visually striking. And it's been an enormous like tonic for me because we haven't really been able to travel. And the reason I'm suggesting this now, it's not a new channel. I mean, it's been around for a little over a year, maybe two years. A lot of you will have heard of it, but um, Italy obviously was hit very hard and they are, I believe, just now starting to kind of lift the restrictions on travel. And so I think the world is going to open back up to him as a, as a you know producer of these videos. And I think the the quality of what he's producing is going to just get exponentially better now that he can go places. So the last entry I think I saw from him was like he and his daughter getting on the train to go to um, to Vienna, and you know when he can travel around, it's like a watch oriented travel log, and it's incredible. I encourage everyone to go into his back catalog and look at the video that he did on the Seiko Alpinist mm-hmm. in Cortina. You know, this was before, right before COVID. He's, you know, up in this really swanky, you know, mountain town. Um, and it's just so cool. And the production values are so cool. And he's got a lot of great stories. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's awesome. I've been getting into YouTube more lately than I used to. I mean, I, not that that's, you know, I'm a little behind on that one, I think, but definitely consuming more because I, I think the production qualities and the kind of perspective has been super interesting to me. Right on. Well, Cameron, we gave you like a whopping two minutes and put you I on the spot. I can jump in on this. Do I got, it. I got something. So I've been doing a lot of gardening here in uh, in Nashville. And things grow like crazy. But uh, I, so I've been deep in that. I would recommend, it's not a, a new release or anything, but The Biggest Little Farm. It's a, a movie that essentially a... a uh, movie producer or could be a director. I'm, I'm not sure what his job was before going to start this farm, but he, he went and he bought this farm and he, it's just about everything, uh, the whole process of going through and making this land a viable operating farm uh, without using chemicals and, and pesticides and trying to do it as naturally as possible. It, it was just unbelievable. And you don't realize how much goes into the production of food, whether it's fruits and vegetables or meat. It really is incredible. Uh, and I'm seeing some some things here in my garden that go back to that. And I just, you know, we'll get some caterpillars in and I think, well, what can I do? Can I, can I let the chickens into there to, to eat the caterpillars to save the, save the squash or... <laughs> It's just, it's unbelievable to, to see. And it also kind of makes me think about the, the cost of our food. And we might have some issues in the future where we realize that we have artificially kept the cost of our food too low for long-term production. But great movie if, uh, if anyone wants to check it out. The Biggest Little Farm. Yeah, The Biggest Little Farm. Super cool. I imagine your garden's yeah. getting more rain in Nashville now than it did back in LA. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing here because we'll get uh, a rainy day will consist of like an hour where we get one inch of rain. And then the rest of the day is sunny. The rest of the week might be sunny. 
So the, the garden's way happier here than it was in LA. <laughs> That's awesome. That's fantastic. Hey, where do, uh, where do I find that if I want to watch? Is that on Prime or Netflix? or? Uh, I watched it on Netflix. So as long as okay. it's still on Netflix, you should be good to go there. Yeah, I'll yeah. definitely take a look. Um, so you hear to, heard it here, folks. That is uh, Cameron Weiss's Biodynamic Farm and Watch Manufactory. <laughs> Speaking of where right. to find uh, things, Cameron, where's the best way for people to connect with you? I mean, I imagine most folks already are, but um, some places they yeah, might find uh, your guys' work. You can... You can find our website, WeissWatchCompany.com, or you can find us on Instagram, uh, WeissWatchCompany. You can find me on Instagram as well, Cameron M. Weiss. Um, we're also on Facebook as well. Awesome. And I will tell you, the uh, I feel like the, the Weiss Watch uh, Instagram has taken on a really great um, visual tone over the last, I don't know, I couldn't tell you exactly what the, the moment was, but... Um, really a great, it's always been good, but I think just the, the tone and the photography has really been top notch lately. Oh, thank you. That's uh, we have a new photographer. Um, my buddy, Jacob Patrick, he's out in LA and he's the one, he's got the automatics right now. He's got so, it. Uh, <laughs> but he's been doing all of our photography for our site. Um, and for our Instagram, um, he's, he received a Weiss watch as a, a wedding gift many wow. years ago one of our early latte dials um, and he's been a big fan and we became friends over the years. So he's doing all of our photography now. It's great. It's fantastic. Well guys, that's super cool. I'm going to go ahead and hit the stop button here in a second, but Cameron, it's been a real pleasure, not just having you on, but kind of, you know, reconnecting, um, you know, I, between us, I think, you know, we've run into each other a couple times, uh, at various either get togethers or, or, you know, um, AD events or, or what have you. And it's just, it's neat to be able to, to talk to you at greater length and to hear about plans for the company. And, you know, we hope you come back. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. You got it, bud. So, Hey, let's let that be the last sip. Everybody. Cheers. Raise them up. Cheers. Cheers. Here's to you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.